are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evercatinos. We are picking up this evening on page 48 with letter E, if you have the text in front of you. Again, that's page 48. And if you remember, we've been discussing idleness uh, and the dangers of idleness in the spiritual life, um, that we are in this constant state of receptivity as human beings through all of our senses. And so we find within the fathers, certainly the sense that, you know, one has to earn one's keep, let, you know, following the teachings from scriptures, let those who do not work, not eat. And uh, so there was this clear sense of uh, the ability to be able to take care of one's self and to, to provide for one's own food, not to have to rely upon others. And, uh, but also, I think there is this sense because of this constant uh, being in this constant state of receptivity of keeping ourselves from being idle, that uh, having uh, wor the work of our hands uh, constantly before us and uh, uh, being engaged in something simple. Uh, in fact, for the fathers, the simpler, the better was a way of remaining focused that uh, if one were to attempt to simply pray constantly without engaging oneself, uh, the likelihood that one would be able to sustain that would uh, be very difficult. That we're human beings, uh, we have a body and we have to keep ourselves uh, engaged uh, in order to be able to keep our attention fixed and so certainly even in our prayer, uh, we've talked about this before, uh, about various postures, prostrations, using the chotki or the prayer rope uh, to add a bodily element to that prayer is important as well. Uh, but we see this in the work of one's hands too. And this is emphasized in this hypothesis. So again, we are in 48 with number eight, or I'm sorry, with letter E. From the Gerontikon, Abba Amos and Abba Bitimios once visited Abba Achilles. It was very early, and they found him working, plating rope. They asked him to direct a few beneficial words to them, and he replied, Since yesterday evening up to this time, I have been plating rope at full pace, though in fact I do not need to do so much work. However, I'm working thus, lest God find it necessary to chastise me, saying, 
Why, despite the fact that you are able, do you not work? Therefore, I labor with all my strength. The fathers were benefited by these words and departed. Now, this was a little unusual uh, because most often uh, the fathers uh, emphasize a kind of moderation in that work, certainly the necessity of it, but not driving oneself 24 hours a day. Uh, but I think what is being emphasized here for us is this kind of rigor in that work and zeal in that work that one takes it up, as we've talked about so often in the past, as an obedience, uh, as a, a way of being faithful to God, that we are charged with a particular task, uh, especially those living in the communities have a specific work that they are given each day to accomplish. And so would take that up as if they're doing it for God, for indeed they are. And uh, so to emphasize this, uh, he tells them that he's been working at, at full pace, knowing that he will have to give an account to, to God uh, for any idleness or laziness on, on his part and uh, being able to take care of himself. But just again, to re to emphasize that the fathers didn't think that uh, working to the point of exhaustion uh, was a good thing. In fact, they often would see this as a temptation, that it would, it would be a demon driving someone to work beyond what was necessary uh, for the day and to feed oneself for the day. And... Uh, that when the thought comes into one's mind that, well, if I'm chopping this wood, if I just keep chopping, I'll have enough for five days and won't have to worry about it for, I won't have to, you know, uh, worry about that for a whole, whole week. And, uh, but often these holy elders would see a demon standing behind the monk, driving them as it were with a whip, uh, because, uh, the thought of losing oneself in one's work or trying to get ahead of the game could be uh, a sort of a, a loss of a trust in the providence of God and caring for one, that one would have to, you know, like the figure in the gospel, you know, that have to build up stores of grain to provide for oneself, uh, whereas we're not guaranteed uh that we will be here tomorrow. And so one labors for, for the day uh, in an appropriate fashion uh, and in order again to support oneself, uh, but not to the point of work becoming our identity and taking the place certainly of our relationship with, with God and with others. Number two. A certain brother went to Mount Sinai to visit Abba Siloam. Seeing the brothers there working, he said to the elder, Labor not for the food which perisheth, for Mary hath chosen that good part. Instead of responding, the elder said to his disciple, Zacharias, Give the brother a book and take him to his cell, where he is to have nothing. The brother, of course, did this. Now, when the ninth hour was approaching, the visiting brother continually had nothing but the door on his mind. Maybe they are sending someone to call me to eat. 
the ninth hour would typically when would be when the fast would be broken, which would be around three in the after afternoon. Uh, and so his thoughts are are not on prayer at that point uh, or on Christ, but rather on the door, hoping for that somebody would come along and knock and invite him to dinner. Uh, but of course, this doesn't take place. However, after an hour had passed, no one had called him. He got up, went to the Abba and said, did the brothers not eat today, Abba? Of course, the elder answered. Then why did they not call me? The brother asked. Since you are a spiritual man, the elder replied, you have no need of such food. Since we, however, are fleshly men, we want to eat and therefore we work. You, however, have chosen the better part. You studied all day and do not now need to eat fleshly food. The visiting brother, on hearing these words, made a prostration to the elder and said, Forgive me, Abba. And the elder responded to him, In any case, Mary has need of Martha too, since it was on Martha's account that Mary was praised. There are many Marthas who probably love this story. <laughs> uh, but uh, his point is well taken, that one can use the spiritual life, the life of prayer, as a means of avoiding labor, or have this false sense of the spiritual life, that uh, somehow, again, that work and providing for oneself is not necessary and couldn't even use the scriptures as this monk does. Mary chose the better part, as if the monks in their labor were not at the same time focused upon God. The issue with Martha in the gospel is that she is was anxious and worried about many things, that uh, she became agitated and angry uh, rather than simply serving in love. Uh, and doing what she was doing in preparing the meal, that uh, she became agitated over her sister sitting at the feet of the Lord and listening to him. And she even rebukes the Lord, if you remember, tell her, you tell her to get up and help me. And so she rebukes the Lord. And so this is more the issue, not that she is working, but that she loses sight of that in the work, she is to be loving the Lord, that the work becomes abstracted from that relationship, even though she's doing it for him. And uh, this can happen to us in the spiritual life. It happens to priests all the time. I think they can go about their labors and it can become abstracted from Jesus, where they experience their life as a burden and beaten down by it because in so many ways they have lost sight of christ they've become businessmen or administrators and if there's not uh, a life of prayer there then even their work and all of their labors may come to naught or simply seem to be oppressive and but this monk here you know presents himself as being more spiritual than the monks in the monastery and so the, the Abba gives him uh, a good lesson, you know, see how long you can go without eating, uh, uh, that you are to live like an angel in the sense of being 
focused upon God, uh, but in reality, you are not an angel. You're to model your life on them, but you still have to provide for the needs of the body. And, uh, and so this is why, you know, we see, again, in the monasteries, this emphasis upon work. And even when one is a hermit, that there is a, a work that is to be done on a daily, daily basis uh, in order to provide for oneself. Number three, a certain David? Yes, go ahead. How do you know um, that uh, when you're doing things, that it isn't your will or God's will leading you while you're doing this? Like I was chopping wood for two and a half months mm -hmm. up in the Arizona, Arizona mountains. Mm -hmm. Okay. And oh. now I'm sitting on the beach in Playa del Carro in Mexico, and I don't know when I'm leaving. <laughs> okay that's that, that, that's an extreme example but it's a true example but i would go out there and because i was in such good shape i would chop up maybe like a, a half a quarter wood because it was cold there mm -hmm. and and the people there they would just chop up because they were the, generally around the same age as me and they would chop up some wood let's say they chop up maybe i don't know maybe half a day's worth of wood i would chop three days worth of wood now was i playing out my own ambition to stay warm or was I just doing something because I was being guided by God? Because I knew we needed the wood. Right. Right. Well, I, I don't know the intentions of your heart. So uh, I can't answer that directly. But what I can say is that often imbalance enters into our life in one form or, or another. And this is true with work, that we can extend the amount of time that we engage in that labor, uh, often at the cost of other things that are equally or if not more important. Now, these circumstances sound unique, that you were in a place where you know that they needed wood and you're uh, in such shape that you could work longer than they typically would, who would be staying there permanently, that this wasn't your, isn't your permanent residence from the sounds of it. And so you extended your labor from the sounds of it, again, to help them or to provide more uh, for them and reduce their labors. But often, I think if we look at it in the broader way, that we are to avoid the extremes and we can be drawn into them uh, whenever, there, there, again, there is an imbalance that we find ourselves doing more, uh, you know, simply either for the satisfaction of it or some internal pressure telling us we, we need to do this, an anxiety perhaps that we will be left wanting unless we go further than say what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, perhaps cutting up a half uh, day's worth work of wood at a time. Um, and so they were in a pattern that was suitable to their life. If you were living there constantly, then one might say, well, they're a kind of imbalance had emerged 
if every single day you were cutting three days worth of, uh, of wood, um, you know, one might be in great shape, but I think if you were to do that every single day of your life, you would probably be eating a lot more, uh, for one thing, on a day-to-day -day basis. And you might wear, your, wear yourself out physically, despite being in, in good shape. Uh, but to, to do that uh, on a day, day, daily basis, uh, again, you might, uh, you know, I imagine most of them have other things that they do throughout the course of the day where they wouldn't spend such a long time cutting three days worth of wood. You know, they probably had other work within the house, preparing meals or perhaps other things uh, for their families. So, so Father David, so Father, yes. you, see, you seem to mention something about if someone is feeling a certain amount of pressure and you use the word anxiety, mm -hmm. would, wouldn't that be a loss of connection with God within you? Yeah, because I think anxiety typically arises out of a kind of internal fragmentation. You know, that for one reason or another, uh, we are being pressured, you know, by our own thoughts, uh, fears, by demons, perhaps putting the thoughts before us. And so we are being driven and we become abstracted from the purpose of that labor. And again, the people who live there would get into this balance of a day to day life, which is would be common for the monastery as well. You know, they have it very, uh, you know, clearly worked out what is needed for the life of the monastery from day to day. Food and the work that's needed. The abbot, you know, gives out the obediences uh, precisely that one might not be driven simply by one's own judgment or one's own will. And, uh, and that can be tough because sometimes the abbot's going to ask you to do things you don't want to do. Clean out the gutters. Maybe it's not going to be chopping wood or, you know, something less pleasant, uh, or cook the meal for the community. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, there's a balance there. Typically, the first part of the day is given over to work. Uh, it's rarely extended into the afternoon, because that's often given over to intellectual work or spiritual study, and or prayer, or sometimes a little bit of rest, especially if they're breaking the night for prayer. And, uh, and so, uh, there is a kind of order to their life. And, and sometimes certain days are, are hermit days where they don't do any work at all, where they are given over to prayer. So they're very conscious of the order of life and having that life being ordered and directed toward God. And so in the circumstances you describe, you know, there's probably not that pressure there. Again, it's because one can do it. One is, you know, with a group of people where you can provide more wood for them. But again, if you were living with them, that might be another question. And I think sometimes that's why it's good, you know, for us to have a spiritual director where we are looking at how we labor and then certainly a daily examination of conscience as well. You know, am I going about my day-to-day -day work with the zeal that I should and the love that I should, or am I being driven by uh, anxiety or fear, or am I falling into laziness and distraction? 
Father, on may I ask a question? Of course. Um, on a physiological level, mm -hmm. uh, we, we were talking about anxiety, but um, there are people who at times go have uh, what they call panic attacks and the body's fight or flight mechanisms are activated mm -hmm. and um, they lose physical control over their body. Um, what is the church's position on these psychiatric type of um, manifestations? Are, are these demonic? Um, um, I, I was hoping you could opine on that. Well, not demonic. You know, I think the church would acknowledge it as being rooted either in, you know, unconscious trauma of some sort or something that is physiological that is giving rise to the anxiety within them, that they're being driven by something uh, that is incapacitating. Um, you know, it's not outside the realm, of course, of demons to uh, take advantage of our vulnerabilities uh, by tempting us in certain ways that give rise to anxiety or where we put ourselves in positions that are really beyond our capacity, uh, where we overreach. And so we add to the, the weight and the burden of our life unnecessarily. And sometimes the evil demons will do that through uh, a, an undue kind of ambition uh, or, you know, this sense of, uh, you know, being respected by others or, or uh, having a kind of work that we see uh, that is valued by the world or has a certain worth. And so we might step into something that then makes our life burdensome on a physiological and psychological level that then can lead to, to panic, panic attacks. So the church, I, I think, would want a person to look at the more obvious reasons, perhaps, uh, for something like that, like a panic attack, that one would see one's doctor, and perhaps one would see a psychologist or psychiatrist to, to roll out certain things there and to see what might be giving rise to them. Uh, there are a whole host of physiological things too, you know, that can can cause it as much as psychological, and uh, they could need to be addressed. And then, you know, spiritually, I think in one spiritual direction, I think we look at those things, the pressures that weigh upon us, that might not need to lead to anxiety attacks, but lead to anxiety. Uh, leading us to make decisions rather than our listening to God, that the spirit of, of Christ and the spirit of the kingdom is a spirit of peace. And so even when we are faced with difficult things, difficult decisions in life, that we want to make those decisions coming from that position of being rooted in Christ, through our life of prayer, that we are rooted in the peace of the kingdom, the peace of Christ. And so the decision might be a hard one. Maybe even we feel that we're going to sweat blood over it, you know, or, you know, that it has a kind of magnitude about it, but uh, we're able to make our, our way through it and then 
uh, do what needs to be done. And uh, more often than not, I think we are trained to be driven by fear and be driven by anxiety than we are to be led and driven by Christ and the peace of Christ and the love of God from the earliest age. You know, you how we approach education, so many different things. Athletics, you know, often, you know, we, we are trained to think that our identity is rooted in these things. And if we don't achieve them, then we are of less worth or value. Thank you, Father. If you think about you know, family life, if it's not rooted in Christ, then... You know, so many of these things can emerge. And this is why things are often passed on generationally. You know, that there can be this kind of historical uh, way of relating to others that is passed on from generation to generation. And if a person is abused, often they be become the abuser or they learn a certain way of resolving conflicts or not resolving them you know, or responding to them with anger or, or passive aggression and, or, or simply becoming immobilized by it. Yes. So, you know, I think as Christians, we are to look at the whole person and, but understanding that the greatest source of our identity and the greatest source of our strength is our relationship with, with God our healing is always going to come first and foremost through the action of God's grace. Even if we do see a doctor or a therapist or whatever is needed at the time, uh, it's still the grace of God that uh, acts in those circumstances. And so prayer is, should be the thing that we are turning to, to first and should form and shape our response to everything. Rachel writes, I think it is important to be clear that panic attacks when endured with patience can be meritorious. Putting one's trust in God when flooded with waves of panic, the peace of Christ is a gift of God. And I wonder, little by little, one will find the peace of Christ within the storm. Patience will teach one to see, trust in God. He will reveal himself in those moments. Yes, I agree with what you're saying. And uh, if I, I've said this before, if I've never made a patron saint of anything, it would be the patron saint of anxiety. <laughs> that I pretty much grew up with that, you know, socially, you know, all the way through seminary and beyond. Uh, uh, and, uh, it's hard when one is overcome with anxiety and panic to offer it to God. I agree with you, but I think anxiety can be turn us in on ourselves, make us lose sight of God, make it feel like the world is going to crush us. So you're, you're right. And I think you're, you're right, but it's, it's very hard. And one, one has to abandon oneself to God, pray like you've never prayed before. Uh, and, uh, cl cling to God. And so the very reality of that can be meritorious, as you said, that it can lead us uh, to let go of the illusion of our own strength, even in overcoming that anxiety. 
I think most of what I did through the probably the first 40 years of my life was try to control that anxiety. And uh, most of the time through over preparation, <laughs> you know, where you try to anticipate everything you possibly can. And uh, rather than turning first to Christ and allowing things to develop as they may. And again, it's our relationship with him and seeing our identity in him that is this quickest way to experience the peace of the kingdom. And I think our default is to try to control it in one form or fashion. You know, I'd memorize homilies, all kinds of stuff. It was exhausting, you know, and uh, probably taking years off my life, you know, went to Del Carnegie, throwing up outside the building, to forcing myself to go in to try to overcome, you know, this fear of public speaking. And, uh, you know, it's just, it is what it is. And I probably lost quite a few years of my life <laughs> due to it, but uh, a, a good priest said to me when I finally talked to him, he said, you know, what do you think is going to happen when you get up in the pulpit? And I said, well, I'll be up there. I'll be mute. I won't have anything to say. And he said, then what? And I said, I'll stand there and look like an idiot, you know? And he said, well, then you stand there and look like an idiot. Then it's an exercise in humility. You're humbled by it, but uh you know, it uh, still has no bearing on one's value and identity. Uh, you know, it's a strange thing when you're, not to belabor this, I know this is a digression, but when you can be in the pulpit and prepare, both through prayer and study and writing out a homily, but in the act of giving it, it can feel stilted because you are abstracted from God. You're focused upon the words, what it is you're saying, how you're saying it, how the people in the congregation are responding. It Are they receiving it well? You know, is your presentation good? Are you speaking loudly enough? Are you dropping your voice too low so they can't hear what you're saying? All these things. And uh, then you walk away. And even if people say, Great homily, Father, good homily, Father. And you might even have it in your own mind. Okay, that came out perfectly in the way that I wanted it to, to come out. But internally, it feels stilted because the whole act in, the, in, in, in and of itself, the moment, one's, my, my, one's mind is not focused upon God and aware of God. It's not something being done in the spirit. And so you begin to wonder, what impact does this really have? You begin to pray, God, by your grace, for your glory. You know, don't let my poverty here be an impediment to others hearing what they need to hear in the moment. Uh, often that's the only thing that keeps the priest going, because you know your poverty and that you're often not speaking from the place where you should be speaking from, which is out of that relationship of intimacy with the Lord. And so, you know, again, somebody's warned me recently, you don't, you better stop criticizing seminary 
preparation so much or somebody's going to get pretty angry at you and uh and they're probably right but uh you know my seminary was fine and most are but uh where where we need to be in the moment where our hearts really need to be you know we don't we don't need to be in school for four to six years they're even going to extend it and you know focus on grades we really need to be forming the mind and the heart we need to be leading more of a monastic lifestyle than anything and being formed out of that because you know you can get straight a's you can you know and come out of seminary and still uh have no no impact whatsoever and when we see, see what we are facing in the world today you know, it's not going to be eloquence. And, you know, Paul talks about it and he's, he, he saw it, you know, when he tried to engage people philosophically, it fell flat. It's when he preached the Christ crucified. It's when it pierced people's hearts. And when he, when he suffered himself, shipwrecked, stoned, bore the lash multiple times, you know, I've often mentioned this, you know, it's pretty striking. You know, it's one thing for a priest to be dressed in these beautiful vestments up there preaching. It's another thing to imagine someone like a Paul with, you know, a, a couple knots on the head and bruised and maybe a couple teeth knocked out uh, because he was stoned, you know, uh, preaching about the cross. You know, the impact of that is somehow going to be more powerful and even if he didn't have those things still those experiences unites him to christ in ways that we often aren't that we're we are preaching or bearing you know in our own you know whatever our evangelist you know whatever kind of evangelist we are whatever stripe of evangelist we might be we are often preaching from our own ego and rather than from christ Okay, we're moving on. Where did I leave off? Somebody help me out here. <clears throat> Number three. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Father David, but thank you for that revelation. It was beautiful. Okay. Thank you. Sorry for the long digression. Uh, let's see. I think we're on number three. Is that correct? Yes. A certain monk worked on the feast day devoted to the memory of a martyr. On seeing this, another monk said to him, is it permissible to work today? And the former answered him, on a day like this, the servant of God was torn to pieces, tortured and withstood martyrdom. Yet I should not work at such a menial task. <laughs> so often we will look for uh, feast days to you know, lighten our labor. And we have to be careful about that. That, you know, what should drive us, again, is desire. And you, the, when one encounters the life of a martyr, uh, I think it should fill us with this desire, not necessarily for, world, you know, our worldly work, but really our desire for Christ and whatever that in, entails. And uh, again, remembering Isaac, you know, there is no Sabbath in this world when it comes to spiritual battle. 
Someone once asked an elder who was plaiting a rope and did not even lift up his head from his handiwork, what should I do to be saved? And he answered, behold, just what you see. So to have one's focus upon the Lord, uh, one could be plaiting rope, one could be doing any form of labor. And when that focus is upon Christ and one is engaging in that work with love, uh, even though it might not be seen by others, you know, here he was looking down and had his focus completely on the work, but it wasn't just on the work, it was on Christ. To be able to identify what one is doing so completely with the Lord gives everything this extraordinary value. One can be pushing a broom. And if it is being done with the love of the Lord, then it is, you know, rich in his eyes. One is being a faithful servant, you know, uh, at that point. Uh, it's not necessarily, you know, what the world judges as valuable. It's what is in the heart, the intention, the, the desire. Number five, another elder went to the side of a river where he found a thicket of cane. He sat down, cut away stalks from the bank, plaited some of them into rope, and then threw the ropes into the river. He did this until others came and saw him. He then immediately got up and went his way. He was not working because he had to but to be occupied so that his thoughts might remain at peace. So this is what we were talking about a little bit earlier, that often they would gravitate toward a work that was manual, uh, where it did not involve a kind of intellectual work uh, or you know, having to overly analyze things because the, the work with one's hands can help one be focused. And so he was plating all of these uh, uh, things from the, the cane stalks, uh, plating them into ropes, not, not because he needed them, but to simply keep the mind focused. And really, this becomes even the origin of something like the, the chotki. You know, there's some images from the early church fathers of simply using stones and, you know, as they would say in Jesus' prayer, like throwing them in a pile. And then, you know, over the course of time, something like the, the Chotki, uh, Ren has, has a very good background uh, history about this because she makes Chotkis. Uh, but, you know, part of this develops, uh, you know, to keep one's attention on the prayer. You know, of and even some of the more modern elders said, you know, that we should all make our own chakti and then to pray with it, you know, to to learn how to make make it with one's own hands. Number six. An elder said, when you get up in the morning, say to yourself, work, body, to nourish yourself soul to take take vigilant care so as to inherit eternal life so those are our marching orders in the morning get up body you know don't hit the snooze alarm work nurse to nourish yourself 
and soul be vigilant uh, that we might inherit that which has an eternal value. Very simple, isn't it? If we could remember these simple little charges, it would, you know, we wouldn't have to overthink things like we typically do. Number seven, the following incident is told by Abba John the Short. Once when he was young, he told his senior brother, I would like to be carefully, just like the angels, who do not toil, but continually worship God. And taking up his monastic mantle, he left for the desert. He stayed there for a week and returned to his brother. When he knocked at the door, his brother heard him from the inside, but said before opening it, who is it? I'm John, your brother, he replied. John became an angel and is no longer found among men, his brother answered from within. But he persisted and begged. It is I, he said. Despite this, his brother did not open the door to him, but left him to brood until morning. After this test, the brother opened the door and said to him, You are a man, and you still need to work to earn your keep. So John made a prostration to his brother and said to him, Forgive me, dirty brother. Typical, a brother would do something like that, make you stand outside all night. But to, again, the point is a good one, to imitate the angels in this constant attentiveness to God in whatever one is doing, but not to lose sight of our humble state, which means that we have to care for our bodies and care for our own nourishment. I'm being told that the, my mic is kind of fuzzy. Can you uh, hear me okay, everybody? Uh, it's actually my computer. It's like the fan started running for some reason. So uh, it sounds I think, to me. What's that? Okay. It sounds like to me. Okay. But if you're hearing something, I think that's what it is. Number eight, an elder said, the sluggard and one who does not wish to work, God does not want. A very stark way of putting it. You know, a sluggard, one who does not wish to work, one who is not zealous about small things, who does not take them up with love, is not going to take up the greater things with love or cannot be entrusted with the greater things. That it is in the small things of life that we learn to love and give ourselves in love. Often the things that people set aside or treat as insignificant or, uh, or because of their sloth, ignore altogether for somebody else to do. Uh, but when that happens, it often reveals really what kind of person they are and what is in the heart. If a person only works at what feeds the ego, uh, then again, they are not necessarily doing that work for God. But if one is, uh, you know, taking out the garbage, on, you know, emptying the dishwasher, uh, you know, picking up the dog droppings, you know, and doing those things with love, 
then they can be entrusted with things that you know might have greater import but in reality they don't have more import than what we are given to do in the moment uh i mentioned uh one of the priests in the community that i had been with who had been there longer than i had one of the things that was really important for him is the love of the house that when you enter into the community uh and it was called the oratory that uh one of the ways that you show your love is not only fulfilling the task that you have within the community but when you see that something needs to be done, you know, somebody has left uh, glasses sitting or the garbage can is full, that your love of the house, your seeing yourself as part of the community would lead you in that moment to, to see it, embrace it, do it, rather than leaving it for somebody else to do. This showed him, you know, this a real kind of love for the community. It wasn't somebody simply taking advantage of the good things that they had surrounding them or being provided for, but they saw themselves as part of that community. And that gratitude would then lead them to take up those things with love. And so this is often why we see in monastic literature you know, these young novices being given jobs that seem menial. And uh, I had been novice master for a good number of years. And, uh, you know, I'm, sure, I'm not going to betray any names or anything like that. But, you know, one individual looked at our community and had a, a higher degree from a prestigious school and taking out the, the garbage and emptying the dishwasher was a very difficult thing. And he got very, he got frustrated with it. You know, when others who had been there for a long period of time, and certainly those who were ordained were engaged in ministry, and he was being given the, uh, I don't want to say it out loud, the B work uh, uh, in his mind. He was given this, you know, uh, the menial labor. And we had to have quite a long talk about that, you know, because everyone in the community had to do those very same things. Uh, even serving coffee after like a meal, it was considered the honor of the youngest member of the community to be able to perform that task for everybody else. And if a person does not learn these things very early on, then you know they're not going to take, they're not only uh, going to fall into a kind of idleness in their life, but they're going to engage in that their work as they progress uh, with a kind of pride or only looking at times for the things that are self-serving and be resentful of having to deal with the things that come up. I can't come up during the day. I can't tell you the, the number of times where I had to plunge toilets, you know, because somebody 
you know, clog the toilet in, in the women's room again. And, uh, you know, I'd be come out of an appointment and have to run in there and unplug a toilet, you know, or something along those lines. Uh, or something would go wrong with the building, something mechanical. And after all of a sudden you, you're calling the, uh, the service people to, you know, come and address it. And, uh, but you aren't going to be willing to do those things uh, if you have this kind of high-mindedness about your labors. Remember Philip Neary said, leave Christ for Christ. So if the doorbell rings and you're engaged in prayer, you immediately jump up and go because somebody has come for confession or needs to speak to the priest. Leave Christ for Christ. And one only learns that uh, by this willingness to engage in this humble, humble labor. So it's, it's not only about avoiding laziness, you know, what we typically think of as the fruit of idleness. It's avoiding the temptations that come, uh, but also it's forming the virtues that go along with being attentive to this daily labor. Any comments or questions? From St. Ephraim, letter F. Brother, do not be negligent in your handiwork, for often your mind will give birth to the thought that you will supposedly not be able to learn some craft. You are, it will tell you, weak and lazy, and you are unable to withstand the pain that it takes to carry out this work. Look, every part of your body aches from fatigue because you are not used to being exhausted. So get up and go back to where you were. And there your mind tells you, if you but fear God, you will be saved. Wow. So, what the demons can do to us you know, through this spirit of negligence or uh, in some way that we will be tempted to, to get up and, and leave, to let off of the life that God has called us to. And unless uh, we are willing to do what is set before us. And everything will seem more difficult to us out, out of our reach. I've never done that before. And, you know, I'm, maybe I'm afraid to do it, or I think that I'm too stupid to do what I've been asked to do. You know, why is the abbot asking me to do this when I have no experience in, in doing it? You know, immediately our thought begins to run with that and saying, oh, you know, just forget it. I'm going to go, I'm going to go back go back home rather than do this. Now, do not be conquered by such thoughts, Ephraimites, but be patient with the Lord who called you to his kingdom. For he has told us, in patience possess ye your souls. And if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to your yonder place, and it shall remove it. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. So, my beloved, let us be patient. 
For we place our hope not in man, but in God, who saves us all those who hope in him. So there's more that he writes here, but this paragraph in and of itself is important. To be patient with the Lord, to allow him to show us that he will provide us what is needed for the task at hand. To trust in his providence, to trust in the action of his grace, that he will give it to us as it is needed and the way that is needed in order that our heart might be formed in such a way that we are sanctified. It's not, you know, we are not given graces in a utilitarian fashion just so that we can accomplish a certain task. It's also, graces are given in such a way that they purify heart, that they allow us to love others in the way that God wants us to love them, or they lead us to rely upon the grace of God in order that we might not be prideful in the things that we do. So he might not give us everything that is absolutely necessary to do it with perfect ease, uh, because it's more important for us uh, to come to see the preciousness of, uh, of his grace. You know, it's often the things that are, that we've worked for the hardest, that we've had to sweat blood for, that were are most costly, that really are the most precious things and the things that typically endure or have the greatest impact upon others. It's not necessarily the things that are going to be tied for our talents, abilities, and skills, or that it seems, it seems to come to us naturally. Saves all those who hope in him. You know, I don't want to skip over that last line. You know, that, you know, again, we are often driven by fear and anxiety you know, that can permeate our work, it can permeate so much of our life where we lose sight of a God who desires to save all, you know, that it is his will. And, uh, you know, of course we can put impediments up before that. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, this is, you know, God, how God acts in his love. Suzanne. <laughs> Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your experience, because I think a lot of us have some of the same experiences. I know I do, and I really appreciate hearing what you have to say about your own struggles. And then um, about that that uh, 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 novice that you had mm -hmm. uh, with the high degree, you know, analogously, I... I read a lot of the lives of the saints and a lot of times our Lord gives really profound graces to children mm -hmm. and they walk with him from a very early age. Well, that's not been my experience. Uh, my experience was the big fat sinner and didn't come to him until I was in my early thirties. And so a lot of times I have that same reaction that that novice had, like why, you know, why didn't you treat me the way, you know, why didn't you make me holy when I was a kid? And so I, I, it's like, it's like it pride. It has to be a form of pride, but it's also a, I think it's a lack of obedience to divine providence, but I just wanted to mention that. Thank you. Right. Very good. Yeah. 
you know, often it's hard for us to take joy in what others have received. And especially when we think of it in those ways that they are somehow privileged. You know, some people dislike Therese of Lisieux <laughs> because, you know, she had what seemed to be this telescoped uh, sanctity that things were crammed into a very short life. Uh, I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here she is a doctor of the church, you know, and, and, you know, was this little obscure nun, but, you know, in, in, in a Carmel, but, uh, you know, throughout her life, you know, I think there was a, you know, a kind of natural virtue within her, but also a family life that helped form that. Uh, but uh, also, I think God does that in children or young individuals uh, in order to manifest his grace and to create the desire within us for the same thing, not to envy it, but that we might desire it. And plus, we also lose sight of the fact that she only did live to 24 because she died of consumption, which basically meant she drowned in the, the fluid in her own lungs. You know, she was coughing up her lungs, pieces of her lungs, and there was no like pain medication or anything like that. You know, what she endured was horrendous. And, uh, and we don't see that, and nor do we know the darkness that she endured, too, in those times. If you read about her last conversations with her sisters, that they, they wrote down the conversations that they had with her while she was dying, it gives you a much different picture of Therese than what is found in the story of a soul. Uh, you know, because people will often simplify that. Oh, just take the simple way, just love. But, you know, this, you know, this, she was a Carmelite, for goodness sake. And she died of tuberculosis. And, you know, there was, uh, but also a, a spiritual cross that she bore as well, and that she embraced with this deep love. And so we, you know, even when we read about the saints, you know, we don't see the whole of them. Uh, it's been said by one saint that what we do see of the saints is the least part of them. And I found that to be a striking thought. The miracles that they perform, the virtues that we see in them is the least part of them in the sense of what God does in their hearts and what he creates there by the action of his grace. And uh, that's true for Therese, but it's also true for, for us, you know, the, the big fat sinners, or I can't remember how you put that, you know, until our thirties or perhaps later that, you know, God is working and even working at times in and through our rebelliousness and in an instant can bring about a transformation and a deep sanctification that leads us to, to turn to him. Uh, very often we're like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. You know, even when we are somewhat faithful, 
you know, uh, you know, when we plot along, you know, being good on the surface, not getting into any big trouble, we can resent also those who undergo this kind of, con you know, conversion and are embraced and seem to know the joy uh, of of the Heavenly Father in a way that we don't know. And we can come to kind of resent, resent that. And uh, so there's a whole host of things for us to think about in this hypothesis. And uh, and so as I've gone through it a couple times, it, it's like so many of the others, a, a portrait or uh, is being painted for us, this image of, you know, ultimately I think it is of Christ uh, because it's in him that we see what it is to be a human being and what it is to love and, and to give ourselves in love. Uh, but there's a lot more than in this whole discussion of idleness than just not being slothful. Again, it's, you know, overcoming certain vices, but developing virtues, a greater capacity to love, humility, all of these things are, are found within it. And I, again, it's part of our reading slow, slowly, or even taking these digressions that allows that to, to emerge for us. So, you know, if you have the opportunity to go back and think about some of these or reread it, uh, because uh, often the tr deeper truths begin to come forward after we read it a number of times. Okay. So a lot to think about. Great questions tonight. Uh, sorry for the poor audio, if it was disruptive at all. Uh, again, my computer, computers have their own minds for some reason. I don't know, know what it's doing half the time. But uh, okay, so we'll close there and uh, pick up again on Wednesday. Uh, I, I might ask Ren if, if she opens it up on Wednesday, it might be just because I I have uh, pre-sanctified liturgy at 6 p.m. And I should be done in plenty of time. Uh, but sometimes I'm just get, getting to my room as we're about ready to start. So uh, don't think that I've forgotten on Wednesday. Okay. So why don't we close with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.